I, I am honored to be here, excited to be here, appreciate the invitation uh, from Brother Ernest, and um, uh, we had lunch uh, two weeks ago, and in the course of our conversation, he mentioned in passing that um, Gina spent several summers in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, I've lived in Belton for a year, prior to that, had lived in Shreveport for uh, almost two decades, and... Um, asked him what she had been doing there, and she had been an intern at a local church. And so I asked him the name of the church. He told me, and it's the exact same church that my daughter is an intern with this summer. How crazy is that? Isn't that amazing? Uh, Springs of Grace there in, um, in Shreveport. So uh, always excited to see how, how the body of Christ connects, even, even uh, into distant lands like, like Louisiana. Uh, so uh, excited about that. Brother John mentioned that I serve as provost at the University of Mary Harden Baylor. That's what brought us uh, back to Texas. We uh, attended graduate school at Southwestern Seminary and Baylor University before heading uh, back to Louisiana. And about five years ago, was working at Louisiana State University in Shreveport and became the provost there. And when I got home, Paul, my son, who at that time was 10 years old, said, Dad, what? What's a provost? And uh, so seeing, you know, this is what we do as parents. We see teaching opportunities. So I uh, said, well, son, there's, there's three people who work for the president at, uh, at LSU Shreveport. There is the um, vice chancellor for business affairs. And Paul kind of looked at me strangely. I said, that's, that's the boss of the money. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, there's a vice chancellor for student affairs. And uh, that's kind of the boss of the students. He said, okay. And I said, and then there's the provost, um, and that person's kind of the boss of the faculty, the teachers. And he said, oh, okay. And he said, Dad, you know, when I get, get older and I kind of, <clears throat> I sort of knew what was coming, I was, I was getting a little proud, you know, of what my son was about to, to say. He said, Dad, when I grow up, I think I, think I want to be the boss of the money. Uh, was his, among those three, that's the one that he, uh, he identified with. We're thrilled to death to be back in Texas and excited to be uh, working at the University of Mary Harden Baylor. It's a, a, a Baptist institution uh, with a majority of our trustees appointed by the Baptist Journal Convention of Texas, of which uh, Main Street Baptist is a part. So I, I greet you on behalf of your brothers and sisters who are working there, and, and uh, I know from from the early service, this service as well, some uh, alums here, so uh, thrilled to death to be a part of the UMHB family, and excited about the opportunity to come back and, uh, and get to preach, so I'm grateful uh, for the invitation uh, to come. Our sermon this morning is going to be from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read this. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he 
is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Father, we give thanks for your words from Paul to the church at Corinth, knowing deep in our hearts that these words were not just for them, but for us. And so we pray, Father, for opportunities to share your love and reflect back the love that you have given to us, those around us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The message for this morning is, uh, is simple and, and straightforward. It's simple. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. And it is based on this foundational idea that uh, Christ expressed and that Paul communicated with the churches, the idea that because God has loved us, we are to love others. And we are to show that love in different ways. And understanding that that is all of our role as Christians. That's what is up to us. I was quite blessed to be raised in a, uh, a church, a Christian family, a Baptist church. I uh, grew up in McKinney, uh, just north of Dallas. And, and I'm, I'm sure the fault was mine, not my teachers. But somewhere along the way, I picked up the idea that church works this way. You have people who go to church and support the church with tithes and offerings. And then you ha- and, and we all sit out there. We sit in the, in the benches and the pews. And then there's a separate group called ministers who are up here. And these people minister. We provide uh, tithes and offerings that supports them. But they do the ministry and we sit back. And as I actually begin reading scripture, God has corrected that mistaken view. And I, I see many of you nodding. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're way ahead of me. And that's simply this. I, I think more than anything else, that's a holdover from uh, our, our Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ where you have this strict division between priests and congregation members. And I, I think we've taken some of that into our Baptist tradition but understand that God has called all of us to be ministers. That's who we are. We are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means it's up to us to share the love of Christ that he has shared with us, with those around us. <clears throat> so that's the sermon in a nutshell. That's, that's it. <clears throat> Let us pray. <clears throat> Paul is talking to the church at Corinth because they had raised some questions about what it meant to be a minister. And in fact, the first uh, several chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul is defending his role as a minister. And he finishes by saying, but wait, there's more. Not only am I a minister, but you are too. And and in chapter 5, he gets into the why and the reason behind that. Now, you and I know, because we've had this experience, that sometimes what we have a tendency to do is take our church life, which happens on Sundays and perhaps Wednesday evenings, and we put that in one silo. And then we have another silo we call home life, which is how we interact with those in our family. And then we have a third silo that we call school or work. And so we tend to look to each silo for different things, and many of us tend to act different ways in each of those 
silos. And Paul wants the church at Corinth to understand that Christ is not content to stay in one silo, the church silo, and leave the other two for us to do whatever we want with. That in fact, Christ wants to cut across all of those into each and every corner of our lives. There's a great metaphor that uh, C.S. Lewis uses, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention uh, something else by him later. But he, he says that many of us, when we come to Christ, we, we come with our sins, we come with our, uh, the, the difficulties of our lives, and he said we're kind of like a dirty cottage. We're like a, a house that's a little run down, and we turn to Christ to fix us up. Clean us up, make us look better, make us act better, uh, help, help the sin in our life, get through all that. And that's what we're content to do. And so Christ does come into our life and empowers us to clean up our lives, to bring healing, to fix up the cottage. But at one point, Lewis writes... that those who follow Christ will discover that he's not content to live in a clean cottage. In fact, pretty soon he's going to tear down a wall and begin making pretty significant changes in our lives. And we'll say, wait a minute, that's not what I was looking for. I wanted to kind of clean things up. And that Christ will respond to us, that was your plan. You don't understand, though, that I'm building not a cottage but a castle something fit for me to live in. And it's going to be far beyond what you expected or even hoped for. And so we have, our, we have our lives set up in a certain way, but Paul's emphasis to the church at Corinth is that because of the transformative power of the love of God, that he has other things in mind for us and that we are to take that love to those around us. So let's take a look at what Paul has to say and about this power that moves along in our lives. He says several things about the role of the love of God. The first thing he shares in verses 14 and 15 is this. The love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. It drives us. Look at these two verses. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The love of Christ compels us. If you are a visitor to this planet, maybe a, I, I don't know, an alien coming in to observe human culture, and you looked at the art that we produced, if you looked at the... Uh, cards that we send one another, if, if you listen to the songs that we sing, you might conclude that love is pretty important to humans. That it seems like almost every song, every popular song deals with love. That almost every movie that we see has some element of love that appears in it. That love is very important to humans. Karen and I have, uh, uh, we, we were excited to be moving back to Central Texas. Did not realize, I mean, we looked at it on a map, but you don't know till you get here, uh, how close Belton and 
the Georgetown, Austin area are. I mean, it, it takes a half an hour to get here. And so we have, um, have loved the fact that we can come down and see movies in this area that we can't see elsewhere. And uh, last week, we came down uh, to Austin to see a movie about Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Have any of y'all seen, seen this film? A couple of you have. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor, and it's a documentary, and it talks about his life and uh, talks about his faith. Uh, he was a ordained Presbyterian uh, minister, and, uh, and actually at his ordination, he was commissioned to use television to share the love of Christ. I mean, they mentioned that in his ordination back in the late 60s, which I, I didn't realize. I thought that was pretty impressive. And the, the theme that runs through the documentary, the theme that ran through his life, is the fact that um, everyone is both capable of love and everyone should be receiving love. He, he puts it this way. So I'm quoting from Mr. Rogers. I, I don't know of a greater authority uh, than Mr. Rogers. He said, The toughest thing is to love somebody who has done something mean to you, especially when that somebody is yourself, he said. And deep within us, no matter who we are, there lives a feeling of wanting to be lovable, of wanting to be the kind of person that others like to be with. And the greatest thing we can do is to let people know that they are loved and capable of loving. And the, the, the documentary does, I think, a great job of communicating how his, his, his Christian faith resulted in this outpouring of love for those around him, and that that love that he shared, particularly with children, was so attractive that kids loved to be around him. I mean, they were around him all the time, communicated that to him as well. There's something about love that is baked into us as humans, a desire to share love with others and a desire to receive love also. And I believe that God has baked that into who we are as people. This desire for love, this desire for community, this desire to be with others. And Paul is, is very clear on the source of that love. He said it is the love of Christ that compels us, that provides the fuel for which we live. That all of the expressions of love that we see, whether they're in films or, or songs, may be uh, misdirected maybe toward uh, incorrect ends, but the motivation behind that is because each of us have uh, a creator that we share that has built us to love one another. Lo love can, do, can make people do some weird things. Have you noticed that? Perhaps you've experienced that. Love can make people do crazy things. Several years ago, I was walking in uh, our neighborhood in, in Shreveport, and there was a, was a guy who had this big tree in his front yard. And I walked by one day. It was an older gentleman, and he was up in the tree. And he had framed out this huge tree house in his front yard. And I, I walked by it, and I, I was thinking... This is going to look terrible. 
you know, people are going to see this when they drive. What's this going to do to, to uh, values, property values? This is, I mean, uh, does he have to have a permit to do this? All the, anyway, and I thought, what, what in the world would somebody do this for? And I was walking by, and he was up there sweating. It was a real humid day. And he looked down, and he saw me, and I guess he saw my, my curiosity. And he said one word, one word that answered all my questions. And the word was grandkids, he said. Grandkids. He said, I don't have a tree in the back, but I've got to have a tree house because the grandkids. And instantly, not only did that clarify it for him, I thought, oh, okay, well, now I understand. That makes perfect sense. The idea that love can compel us to do unusual things is, uh, is a part of, of who we are. And it's something we've seen. It's something we've received. It's something that we've initiated as well. I remember many years ago when I was a kid, I was staying at my grandmother's house who lived in Marshall, Texas, and and, and uh, she got me a book of stickers. Do you remember these? They were, they were sort of coloring book. They had the outline of different things, and then in the back, there were all of these stickers that tasted terrible, and you would, you would find... Uh, it, the, the one I had was a garden, and so you would find the bird in the back, you'd peel it out, you'd find it, the page of it, you'd lick it and stick it in there, and I, I'm not sure what the ultimate purpose of this was, but that's what you did uh, before the internet. This is, this is what we did, we had sticker books. <laughs> and so there was, there, was, uh, there was one day I was working on this, again I was around the age of five, and there was a bumblebee sticker that I, I pulled out, and before I could find the page, I dropped it, and it fell on the floor. At which point, of course, I completely ignored it because I, you know, was five years old. So I keep working on the book, and my grandmother happened to be vacuuming at the time. And she had one of those canister vacuums. You remember those? These long canisters that you'd plug in, and then you'd have the piece that you'd go around and do all that. It was like an old school Roomba. She would go through the whole, the whole house and, and do this. And so she came through the uh, dining room where I was working on this and, and went on and, and on her way. And so then I got to everything in the book and finished with one exception, the missing bumblebee, and realized that it was on the, on the floor. So I looked down and it was gone. The bumblebee was gone. I'm telling you, the bumblebee was gone. So I, uh, I assessed the situation as a five-year-old. I, I, I uh, put two and two together, figured out a reasonable course of action, and began screaming as loud as I could and wailing and weeping because the bumblebee was gone. So grandmother came in, and I, I told her what had happened, and she went and got some. We used to get these things every morning called newspapers, and uh, she and they would they, they would you know you'd, you'd keep them for a few days, and she got some newspapers and she unfolded them, set them on the ground, opened this canister with all this trash in it. And this is the image I have of my grandmother is is digging through this garbage until she found the bumblebee. I think she made me lick it, but she did pull it <laughs> out of that. Now, why why would anyone? open up a canister of filth for a, a piece of sticky paper. It makes no sense at all. It's not logical at all unless you add the dimension of love. Love compels us to act beyond what we, what we do. 
Let me tell you my favorite story about my wife, Karen. Karen was a nurse uh, for many years, and um, and there. <laughs> And, and it led to some unusual circumstances. So here's one. I went, Karen and I went into Walmart, and while there, I ran into a former student, and we began talking and introduced Karen, and then she sat there and observed this gentleman. Um, and about halfway through the conversation, she interrupted, and she said, Do you feel okay to him? And I think maybe he did feel okay until she asked that question. I mean, that's kind of an odd question for someone to ask. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you, you look kind of pale. Have, have you been to the doctor recently? And he said, no. And she said, look at, look at your hands. And she mashed his, I guess this is what nurses do. She mashed his fingernails and they didn't turn pink right away. She said, uh, you're, um, you, you may need to, to go in and, and see. You don't, you don't seem like you you know, your oxygen is circulating as it should. And he said, well, now that you mention it, I feel kind of, of course, I don't know if he actually did or if she kind of talked him into it. Um, and then he promised to go see a doctor and, and we went on. It was the most awkward conversation I had ever been a part of because he was not expecting this and she came out of nowhere. But here's why she did it. Here's why she did it and here's why Karen's so amazing. She loves people so much she would rather have an awkward conversation if it leads to someone's benefit than to not. Whereas I would tend to just kind of avoid situations like that. But her love for others is so strong that um, she puts up with awkward conversations. Indeed, she even initiates them. And so Paul is reminding us that it's that sort of love, this love that we have for others that compels us to interact with them. Love should motivate us as Christians. When you look at the, the motivations for different groups these days, love is not at the top of the list. You see lots of groups motivated by fear. Some groups motivated by hatred. Some motivated by desires for revenge, getting even. It is to the Christian that God says your motivation is to be love. Growing up at First Baptist Church McKinney, we would end every evening service. We would hold hands, cross the aisle, and we would sing a song. They will know we are Christians by our love. By our love. And that, that, that seeps into your, to your brain as a kid when you hear it every Sunday. They will know we are Christians by our love. And why do we love? Paul is very clear. It is the love of Christ that compels us, that starts us. Love compels us. The second thing Paul tells us about love in verse 16 is that love blinds us. Love blinds us. Look at what he says. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. That is, we don't look at them the way other people look at them. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Have you spent any time this week, just in general, you've encountered a lot of people throughout this last week. Did you at any point this week encounter someone who you could describe, generally speaking, as an idiot? Did you encounter anyone that you would identify as an idiot? 
Because let me tell you, they're everywhere out there. Some of you may work with idiots. Uh, Some of you may drive on the highway alongside idiots in other vehicles. And sometimes, this, I think this is the worst. I think this is the absolute worst. Is when, you, when you're going to purchase something and you get to the store and the person who helps you, you quickly realize that you know more about, because you've been studying it, getting ready, you know more, more about it than they do. And you wish you'd gotten the other guy, but you got this guy. And you think to yourself, boy, I drew the idiot this time. <clears throat> what, what Paul tells us in verse 16 is we no longer regard others from a human perspective, but we regard them instead from God's perspective. This idea that in Genesis, when God says, let us create man in our own image, what that means is that every human you encounter bears the impression and likeness and image of God. And so that affects how we interact with those around us. It affects how we meet people. It affects how we work with people. It affects how we live with people. It's understanding that we are to regard no one from a worldly point of view. Each person that we encounter not only bears the image of God, but also is a sinner. And unfortunately, that also applies to us, right? We are a collection of sinners who come together to worship together. And it gets even worse. Our pastor is a sinner too. Every deacon, every minister is a sinner as well. God has called us together. And it is the love of Christ that not only compels us to love others, but blinds us to our normal way of looking at people. We're supposed to look at people differently as Christians. And that's that's hard for me to do. I want to fall into, there's so many ways of looking at people these days. I I think we do live in a a culture that, uh, that is fragmented in many ways. It's easy to pick your own group and look at people from that group's perspective. And, uh, Paul says we can't do that because every person we encounter, no matter how how sinful, how corrupt, how damaged, reflects this image of God. And we are to love them. Well, how do we do that? Because that's really hard. Paul is clear in verse 17. He says, love transforms us. That we begin our relationship with Christ. Our old ways are behind us that all things are new, and that we are a new creature. It is only the love of Christ that can change us. This is a common theme in books and movies and songs, right? Beauty and the Beast, remember that? Where the love of the young lady transforms the beast into a real person. I think that I think that one reason why culture is so fascinated with love and the transformative power of love is I think there are echoes of God's grace in that. I think that's one way that God draws people to him is even through the broken world that we live in. Because the stories that we uh, admire and listen to so much are affected by others. How we look at others 
uh, is affected by the love of God. C.S. Lewis uh, preached a sermon called The Weight of Glory, and in it he says something very interesting. He says the kind of things that we look at and say, boy, this has been around forever, it's going to be around forever, are things like um, the United States. You know, we're coming up on a, on a birthday this week. That'll be big. Uh, University of Mary Hardin-Baylor has been around since 1845, the oldest university in the state. 1845, that's, that's really old. And it's, Lord willing, both the U.S. and UMHB are going to be around for many more years to come. Or we think about, boy, Interstate 35, that, that thing's been around forever. And good grief, they hadn't finished it yet. And it's been around forever. It's going to be around forever. And C.S. Lewis said, when we think about things that are going to last forever, those are the sorts of things we look at, buildings and institutions, organizations. He said, but the reality is, that every person you're around has an eternal soul. And that in truth, buildings, organizations, roads, those are all going to be gone one day. But that it's the people that we interact with. He said if you could take the person you interact with and see them a thousand years from now, either... They would be a, a creature of beauty and, uh, a, and a citizen of heaven, so amazing that you would probably fall on your knees and want to worship them. Or, he said, they would be a creature of such uh, abject misery that you would want to turn your eyes away from them. And Lewis said this, every day how we interact with these folks moves them one step closer one of those destinations. I mean, what if, what if we truly got that point that every person we interact with, the people that we live with, the people that we drive next to on the highway are eternal souls and that we have a role due to the love of Christ to help their destination, where they're going to spend eternity. Would that affect how we talk to the person in the checkout line? Would that affect how we, uh, the email that we send to somebody we're in disagreement with? How would that affect us understanding that we're dealing with someone who's going to be around for eternity? And what is our role in encouraging them and helping them to better understand the love of Christ? It affects our attitudes toward others. But the love of Christ also affects our attitudes toward ourselves. We, we, we um, so often take, take negative views of ourselves and don't understand ourselves from the perspective that God sees us, which is we are his children. We are sons and daughters of, of God. There's something, in, there's something in kids that really, you know, really gets to that. My girls, so I've got a 23-year-old a 19-year-old, uh, both daughters, and then a 15-year-old son. And the girls, they used to play this game when they were little called princess. And Hannah was the big girl princess, and Bethany was the little girl princess, and then Paul was the royal dog. That's what they, I'm not sure how that, how that worked exactly, but that, that's, what they would always, that, that's what they would always play. And they would talk all the time about being a princess, and they'd wear the tiara, and they would, they would, uh, you know, expect to be addressed as such and all this. They loved watching Hannah Montana. Remember that show? 
about a girl who was a normal girl but secretly was this amazing pop singer. Uh, they enjoyed watching America's Got Talent where you never know how someone looks or where they're from. They might be, uh, you know, this, this incredible uh, performer. There's something that's built into us that, that holds out the hope that we're something special. And the message that Paul has to share is the fact that you are special. That you are the sons and daughters of God. And, and if that story grips us, it can be powerful and it can transform our lives. To me, that's what the gospel is. The fact that this is a broken world that we live in, that we have sinned and fallen away from a relationship with God and that God is calling us back into him. A few years ago, in fact, before our son was born, uh, took our daughters out to eat at Mr. Gaddy's Pizza. And not sure exactly why I, I did this. I think, my, um, I think there was an event coming up that prompted it. But I, I said to them, girls, I want to tell you a story. And they said, ooh, we like stories, because they always have. And I said, once upon a time, there was a handsome prince from the land of Harrison. And there was a beautiful princess from the land of Reigns. And they met together in the land of McLennan. And they met for the first time. And they enjoyed meeting. And they wanted to get to know each other lots better. But a great war came upon the land. And the handsome prince was going to have to leave and go fight in this battle. And so they were scared and nervous because they could not be together anymore and so they decided after meeting six weeks before that they would get married well the parents of the handsome prince and the parents of the beautiful princess were worried about this their friends said what are you doing and they decided to do it and they got married right before the handsome prince went off to war and they got married and they lived happily ever after and they had three sons, and the oldest son had two beautiful daughters who are sitting in Mr. Gaddy's eating pizza right now. And the look that crossed their face, when they realized that this once upon a time story, the story that was out here, was a story that they were a part of without even realizing it, it affected them powerfully to think about it in those terms. And friends, I share with you this morning, that is what the gospel story is. It's a story that is shared with us in a book and in a life of someone who lived many years ago, many miles away. But God is calling us to understand that you and I are a part of that story. And that God has called us to tell that story. And God has called us to live out that story, to understand that our sins, which are overpowering to us in our own lives, are things that we can ask God for help with, that he desires a relationship and offers us a gift of that relationship. But like any gift, it's a gift that we have to receive and to come to him and ask for him to come into our lives 
And for us to receive that gift is the calling that he has placed upon all of our hearts. So Paul shares with us that that's the story that we have been given, and that is the story that we need to share with others. A few weeks ago, I was in Los Angeles and for the first time had a chance to go to Rick Warren's, uh, he's the pastor of Saddleback Baptist Church, so I went to that church and enjoyed it a lot. His wife Kay does Bible studies and there's one coming up on July 17th that I saw in the, the thing earlier, so be sure to sign up for that. And, uh, and he said, he, he finished his sermon by saying something very interesting that I hadn't heard before. And it was this, he said, you We're all here, that is, everyone in this room, God hasn't called us to heaven yet, right? As believers, one day we're going to be in heaven, but we're not there yet. So why why are we here? Why are we here? And he pointed something out. He said there's two things that you can't do in heaven. You think about heaven being this, this great time, this great place, but there's two things that you can't do in heaven. And I'll share those two things with you now. One thing that you can't do in heaven is you can't sin. You can't commit sins in heaven. That's part of the definition of heaven is you can't commit sins there. But there's something else you can't do in heaven. That other thing that you cannot do in heaven is you cannot share the love of God with someone who's never heard it before. You can't share the love of Christ with someone who doesn't already know it in heaven. And then Warren asked this question. He said, which of those two reasons do you think is why God has left you here on earth? Is it so we can continue to sin? That's probably the wrong answer. It's so that we can continue to share the love that Christ has shown us to others around us. And that's the calling that he has placed on all of our lives. I want to give you an opportunity now to respond to anything that God has put on your heart. Uh, Whether it's a matter of asking God for this love, how we accept this gift that he has offered us. Or perhaps you you need a time of prayer. Perhaps you have sensed long before I started talking today that God may be sharing you. Uh, urging you to have a conversation with someone that you've been a little nervous about doing. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to anything that God has laid upon your heart. If you'll stand, we will pray, and then Brother John will lead us during the invitation. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your love for us. I pray, Father, that we would not hold on that we would not grasp too tightly to this love that you have shared with us, but that instead our hands would be open as we share and our voices would be full as we speak to others about the love that you have given to us. In the name of Christ, we ask these things. Amen.